Welcome back to Emerge, y'all. On this episode, I'm speaking with James Sirwillow. James is the author of the book Metamodern Leadership, which is a survey of history, economics, philosophy, and politics, and all the various ingredients that have taken us to this moment in time. And specifically, it's a look into the value sets and value memes that might characterize the millennial generation, which within his model, or this Strauss-Howe model that James uses, uh, the millennials would be characterized as the civic or heroic generation with symmetries going back to the greatest generation. And I really appreciate this archetype or this metaphor and really this invitation to see the millennial generation of, of whom I am one for sure uh, as being a generation that is stepping into a position of duty and a responsibility vis-a-vis the current state of the world and the opportunity to meet the challenges of our time in a way that might characterize our generation. I think that's a really beautiful thought. And so this is a conversation about leadership, about millennials, uh, and about how to conceive of ourselves in this time that we're in. As always, if, if you enjoy Emerge, if you'd like to support this project, you can do so in two ways, I'll say today, two ways. Uh, one is by leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other platform you can leave reviews on. Uh, those reviews really help people discover the show. Or you can support more directly with a financial contribution. You can make a monthly backing donation of $0.99, cents, $4, or $10, and that will go to help maintain the digital infrastructure of the show, as well as making it so that I can spend more time doing research and production uh, for each episode. Okay, well, without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Emerge with... James Sirwillo. Welcome back to another episode of Emerge. This time on the show, my guest is James Sirwillo. And I first heard about James's work, uh, I guess I should say your work, I've been speaking to you now, uh, through the, the writing of Brent Cooper on Medium. He wrote an article called On Metamodern Leadership, How Millennials Will Change the World, and like so many things that I find in this kind of metamodern uh, subculture, I, I felt like there was a way that words were being put to ideas and sensibilities that I had been feeling for a long time, for many years. And after reading that post, I, I picked up your book, Metamodern Leadership, and found it to be a kind of wonderful tour of philosophical, political, and cultural history. Uh, in my mind, I, I think of it kind of like a 
more secular and gr- honestly grounded version of like Ken Wilber's brief history of everything, you know, just in the way that it was this kind of survey, uh, had this quality of like, oh yeah, like, and, and it reminded me because I, I studied philosophy in college. I was like, oh yeah, okay. I remember all these philosophers and okay, this is the time that we're in. And I found that your book gave a really good sense of context to our current kind of time that we're on this planet, you know, th- this time of now with the rise of the millennials as a kind of active uh, class or generation in our, in our culture. And so really excited to have you on, James, to talk about, you know, the Strauss-Howe generational theory, uh, millennials, leadership, and, uh, and metamodernism. So um, welcome to the show, James. All right, Dana, thank you very much. Um, appreciate it. Yeah, I uh, just start off here. I, I took it from uh, Foucault, um, his, his sort of idea of the history of the present. Um, and I know we've, we've discussed this before in, in past talks is, um, you know, what does it mean to be here in the now and, and looking back, you know, what, what can we learn from, from history, which is, a, you know, a question that we always have. But looking back on the, the philosophical history, what, what's the history of the millennial generation in particular and the, you know, I, especially within the past year, uh, listen to philosophers such as uh, Hansi Franek. Um, what's, what's the era of metamodernism in general? What, what does it mean? What, what, you know? Um, so I, I really want to probably want to start talking about uh, generational theory, mm. generational history, that is. Um, the, the Strauss-Howe um, theory, I don't know if uh, a lot of people have heard about that. I know you'll see it in articles from time to time. Yeah. It's, it's this idea, this, this great theory, uh, very unscientific, yet it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It says that you know a generation is roughly 20 years, which we could all agree on. And there are cycles of generations going back in American history for, you know, since basically the 16th century. And the, the crux of this theory is that there are four generational archetypes that mm-hmm. keep repeating in, in an 80-year cycle, which kind of makes sense because you have, um, you know, a saculum, which is what the ancient Etruscans called um, this sort of magical period that makes up a human life. It's, it's four generations long, essentially. So mm. uh, Strauss and House seem to pick up something magical about these, these 80 year periods and specifically these, these 20 year periods, um, especially within the 20th century. And, you know, today we define them as the, the baby boomer generation, the millennial generation, Gen X, um, you know, we kind of have an have an idea what what this is, but where do they come from, and right. where where are they going? You know, right. so that's that's kind of the big idea. Yeah, and so it, it's this really interesting way of I think as you you mentioned Foucault of kind of like deconstructing how it is that generations form their sort of unique identities and value sets and sort of perspective on the world. And so, you know, what, uh, how, how does this generational theory help us understand, uh, you know, what's going on now and, and the metamodern era that we, we seem to be moving into. Sure. Well, um, yeah, th- there was a guy who was kind of a pitch man, kind of an odd, odd guy, like in the seventies and eighties, his name was Morris Massey. 
um, I think he was kind of a sociolo- sociology professor, and he became kind of a pitch man, exactly what you think if you if you ever go back and watch his videos, what you think a pitch man would be. And um, he said things like, "What you what you are now, what you are now is what you were then," something like that. And you know, so he kind of goes back, and and this is really getting into the sociology of of all this is, you know, how did events in your life shape you? I mean, just look at uh, just look at the financial crash in you know 2008. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people say, hey, millennials are 18 in in 2008 for the most part, pretty much the the average age. So how does that affect your life when you're getting ready to go to college, you're getting ready to start your life, and you just had the greatest financial crash and uh, a saculum. 80 years. Mm. Um, so, you know, so Strauss and Howe um, would say that that's not a coincidence that, you know, ha- having 80 years roughly between such uh, catastrophic events is basically the, this sort of magical value structure uh, playing out throughout the years. Cause there's going to be a, a and inevitabilities within these cycles. So it's a little, um, it's a little strange. It's a little metaphysical, um, but it's, it's a, it's a nice idea to, to understand that, um, you know, the idea of, of value structures changing. I mean, we've known this, I mean, there's lots of, uh, the Greeks, you know, they, they said this, that, Hey, the, um, exactly what they said about Socrates, you know, they said, Hey, he's ruining the values of youth. You know, all the, all the, all the, uh, young people follow them. And they said, Hey, this is, you know, the, the value structures are going to hell and, um, we don't know what to make of, of, of the future. So this is, this is nothing new. This is two or 3000 years old at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and there, and there's also in this theory, there's kind of like symmetric symmetries to be drawn out between generations in the past seculum right so uh like symmetrical with or parallel with uh uh millennials is is it the silent generation or which which is the prior generation that kind of occupied the um, same architecture actually yeah it's, it's the greatest generation yeah it's the greatest generation the, the civic the civic the civic generation you know they're they're kind of archetypically the the ones that come in and and rescue they're the heroes mm. um so the, you know you have an idealist generation, which are the boomers. Um, obviously, I mean they're the ones responsible for the social revolutions of the 1960s, right? Um, when they were when they were young. I mean they're the, they're the largest generation in American history until the millennials, right? So pretty much everything about American culture um, currently is shaped by the baby boomer generation. Um, and the only generation that's larger is the millennial generation. Um, and I, a lot of this goes in a lot, a lot of this understanding is that, Hey, let's, let's look at the, let's look at the demographics of all this within the next, within the next decade, three quarters of the world population are going to be millennials. Mm. Um, you know, baby boomers within a five years or so, you know, you're probably talking six, 70% are going to be retirement eligible um, or retired. And that's going to leave a, a vacuum um, for these millennial values mm. and these, these structures that they're setting up that people, uh, you know, 
a lot of people don't necessarily uh, find appealing or think that that's a good thing. So that's where you get into the the, the sort of the political battles and not only in culture, but in politics. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I appreciated about having this theory or this kind of map of the archetypical evolution of generations or however you want to describe it is that it kind of helped me step outside of my context a little bit and get a sense of like the arc of history such that I saw like, oh, okay, like generations ascend into their power and then they 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 leave and there's there's a next generation who comes up and sort of like takes the baton and and plays a certain role in the unfolding of civilization and so maybe like are you could you paint a kind of picture like like what is the kind of archetypical move right of these of these different generations so there's the the hero there's the crisis i i, I don't exactly remember which but do you, could you unfold that a little yeah, bit yeah there's a there's a there's a prophet uh, generation, which is the, essentially the the idealist of the of the boomer generation. Mm. Um, there's the the uh, reactive or the the nomad, which would be the silent generation or Generation Z. Mm. Um, they're the same archetype. Um, and then the civic generation or the hero, um, that is the millennial generation slash the greatest generation. Mm. Um, what about Gen X? Is Gen X? Have, Gen I'm X sorry, is- I. I Gen X is the, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Gen X is the reactive generation or the nomad. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. they're kind of yeah. the ones that are kind of out there lost in, lost in space, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and that, and that makes perfect sense. Um, because you, you know, you look at it, it now we're going to get into, uh, sort of cultural eras. And if anybody is familiar with the term postmodernism, um, mm. Gen, Gen X is, pretty much parallel with with the postmodern world um and i can i can take us through that in a second i'm sure a lot, a lot of people understand that idea but you know it, it's full of uh, cynicism and nihilism and um you know it's it's a it's a like a living breathing simpsons you know where you you don't know you don't know what to believe um you know you you, you grow if you're if you're a a Gen Xer, which which means you're probably born, you know, after 1965 or so. You would you have been a little, little kid, and you would have seen the the president resign, so you you lose faith in your leaders. You have a, an existential crisis in the 1970s, where you know you have stagflation, and you're not sure about the economy, mm. or, or you know what's going to happen in the world. Is there is there going to be a nuclear war? Um, you know you, you're you're not even sure about the industrial economy. I mean, mm. they were, you know, they saw their parents having a pretty uh, uh, cushy life um, with a lot of, uh, you know, it, it, you know, United States in from the nineteen, you know, from the nineteen late nineteen thirties through the end of the sixties was a pretty liberal with a capital L society. Um, and there's a lot of equality. Um, but then again, you get into postmodernism and you realize that, um, there's a, there's a lot of people that were, uh, sort of ostracized from that equality. So now you're talking about, um, you know, gay rights, uh, African-American rights, um, women's rights. Um, you know, what did colonialization do? 
to so that's where you get into the into the postmodern and sort of deconstruction of culture and you mm-hmm. start to question everything in the modern world the whole modern project starting from the you know the 17th century on mm-hmm. so it's like you know the whole world you know and all the structures you know and all all the axioms that you have come to know you start to question right in the middle of the 1970s and this is really a, kind of like i said it's it's an existential crisis for for gen xers so mm-hmm. they got to what are they going to do they got to um you got to be you got to be nihilistic or you got to be cynical to kind of you got to you got to be tough so you got to form some sort of shield mm. so it really it really kind of changes your your perception your being mm-hmm. um so I, I that's why i really get into uh i really get into this the, the idea of metamodernism because it's like um that's going to lead you to a dead end eventually you got to you got to synthesize that that modern project where you had, uh, you know, you're reaching for progress. You can't deconstruct everything until you, you know, everything becomes relativistic and you're not sure what to believe because, you know, it, right. it, it sure makes uh, things a lot better when you can believe in something. <laughs> right. And, well, and uh, there's a way in which, you know, uh, we couldn't uh, move into metamodernism or whatever the post postmodern era is without first doing this kind of nihilistic deconstruction. Like that was necessary. And, and we can imagine like in the previous 80 year cycle that another generation performed a kind of relatively similar role in the relationship between the different generations. And, uh, uh, that this is a kind of like reoccurrence, right. And, and, um, for me, that kind of gives me a level of, of optimism, yeah, that we're kind of ensconced in a larger movement of, of kind of history. Um, but in, in, any, in any case, like, uh, uh, so, so the, the, the kind of, and you're a perfect person, James, because you kind of sit or to, to talk about this because you sit in between Gen X and the millennials. Yeah, you're, uh, um, you kind of are between the two generational eras. Yeah, yeah. I was born in 1979, so I, I've, you know, not that I've really ever looked at myself as being part of a generation because most people don't. But, um, and definitely in the past decade or so, we've started started to do that more than we had in the past. But, um, yeah, I mean, usually you, you, there's there's rough periods where you're gonna, you know, usually the Gen X, of 1965 to to 1979, 1980, right around there, mm. and then millennials are 1980. 81, 82 to maybe 97, maybe 2000. So it's, it's definitely, there's definitely a transitional sort of period right there where you, you're kind of straddling two generations and you're trying to, you know, who do you, who do you identify with? Well, that, that, that tension probably kind of positions you to understand this inflection point that we're moving into now, I think in a, in a, in a, in a unique way um, compared to, a lot of the folks who I think are participating in it, like myself are like straight up millennials, you know, like I'm, I'm 30 years old. So it's yeah, like, sure. <laughs> that's my whole, my whole, uh, uh, the, the, the world I was born into is, is, is exerting the pressures like September 11th and all those things in the way that it does. Um, and so I guess uh, it be, might be interesting then to, so we, we, we have Gen X who kind of are an expression of the postmodern move of deconstruction and, uh, you know, maybe even nihilism and, you know, 
you can look at like punk rock and uh, you know, all the all the cultural trappings that were produced then. And and but now we're moving into the meta modern era. And maybe could you describe a little bit about like the emergence of this of this value set? My book is really um, when I wrote it, I intended to be regarding somebody to sort of make sense out of what they need to do um, personally and and especially professionally, really. So it's, you know, oddly enough, this is, this is, <laughs> this is a business book. Um, it's, it's got almost nothing about business in it. I mean, there's a couple mm-hmm. chapters that really relate to, to capitalism and, and to, to leadership. And um, I think it makes a lot of sense once you put it all together, but you know, participation, you know, sort of, it's it's a, it's a whole different world. There's 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 new power structures that require you to um, to just kind of put things out there. Um, we'll we'll start mm. with that. I mean, you know, if let's say you you let's look, look, let's look at my dad. My dad graduated from high school in 1974, I believe, and um, he had two jobs. You know, he uh, on Monday he had two jobs that he was ready to go to. He had to pick one. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's no college education. Um, and there are good jobs. My dad's retired, uh, from a very good job and it's great with the, with the pension and, uh, you know, good, good for him. That's, that's the way the world worked now then, mm. you know, so what, what do you have to do if you're a millennial? Well, you're going to have to, um, you're probably gonna have to go to college cause you make 50, 56% more, um, by going to college. However, you're going to have a huge bill mm-hmm. um, at the end of college. So does it make sense? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it, <laughs> if you, if you're, if you're trying to increase your odds of, of, you know, not having this to scrape by in your life, it, it, it sure makes sense. Um, what else do you want out of college? It's not, it's not necessarily a financial pursuit. And, and in fact, um, it, it, it was never intended to be a, a financial pursuit um not until the 1980s which is when the millennials were children did we really sort of start to maximize the 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 profit uh the profit end of of college in general i mean and even in the 70s you could go to you you go to college for you know you could you could um i think bill o'reilly said this a lot oh I, i worked my way through college in the in the 1960s or the 1970s by going to a go to get in the summer job it's like well yeah because <laughs> it costs 600 dollars, right you know i mean you could you could do that then it is you can't you can't it's, it's apples and oranges you know you college college costs a lot of money um and it's not just that there's there's no there's no pensions there's uh, high housing costs there's uh you know, there's no guarantee for social security. In fact, um, I believe, you know, in, in the United States, social security is going to become insolvent in 2033. Mm. Um, that is probably going to be the biggest economic political fight of the millennials lives. So, mm. and I don't expect that fight to start for seven, eight years, nine years mm. when, people really start to realize that, Hey, we're going to have to have a, a new social contract because we've, we've paid for everybody's social security up until 2033. 
what's everybody going to do? I, you know, my, in, in 2033, uh, my youngest daughter will be 21 years old. She'll be just about to enter the workforce. Hmm. Uh, what's going to be her reality? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. And, and I think, um, you know, I, I see this in my own family, like my, my sisters are, are more Gen Xers. And so they do have this kind of nihilistic streak, I think. But my, my, my mother, I, I, I see that she had attempted to a kind of apply the story by which her life followed, which is a very typical, like kind of, I think go to, you know, in her case, go to college, you know, become a professor, become a tenure professor. And like, there is this kind of um, journey that worked for her, it worked for my father, it worked for, I guess, people in their generation. And I think for many years, she kind of, uh, she felt that it was strange that I didn't follow that narrative trajectory with my life. And now I think only now that we're kind of in the, in more in the muck of it, you know, more like deeper into this new change in the eras, is she like, oh, damn, like things are very different for you, aren't they? You know? And, and I think uh, it's, it's helpful to reflect on how different things are. Right. Um, and so, yeah, this, this, this topic of like, you know, th- just the economic opportunities, the landscape of economic opportunities is clearly very different. Um, and yeah. And, and then there's this, uh, an issue that we talked a little bit about before the call of, of um, like the technological landscape. Maybe do you want to kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I'm that glad, said? I'm glad uh, you brought that up because that's exactly where I was going. Um, yeah. It's just, you know, in basically it hasn't been 20 years since we've really hit a, a digital revolution. I mean, um, we've pretty much digitified every single thing there is we've, we've codified everything digitally you know the worldview was analog until 17 18 you know and now i believe it's it's over 99 percent of every information is is coded digitally um you know we talk and especially with in politics today in the united states at least we talk about um you know offshoring outsourcing bringing jobs back to the united states and okay um you know, that's fine. Automation, and, and everybody knows this, automation is tenfold more important um, if you're going to talk about jobs than, than uh, bring, bring a, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand jobs back. I mean, we're talking about killing um, millions, tens of millions mm-hmm. of jobs um, and, and what's going to be in their place. You know, the, what, what are the jobs that that uh you know do you, so okay so it seems seems pretty logical okay well i'll go out and get a a stem degree and i'll i'll know something about engineering and about mathematics and about technology and about science and mm-hmm. i'll build um you know i'll build my own uh sort of uh niche out here and and that'll be my my career it'll be pretty similar to the way it was in the past, well, you know, what happens in, 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 in 20 years when, when, uh, you know, that's not how it, what happens when it, technology is going to revolutionize everything again and again. In fact, a, a great example, and here's how deep it goes here. I don't think you can really describe how deep it is. And I didn't really understand this until I just read, I don't know if anybody's familiar with, uh, 
Oh, I don't want to butcher his name. Yuval No. Oh, Yuval No Harari. I'm I'm working my way through the 21 yeah. Lessons book or, or the yeah. Okay, good, yeah. good. Um, I just I just got through the the Homo Dios. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a trip. <laughs> that's his that's his prior book, and um, it's you know it's a it's a developmental book, and I I can get into the sort of the developmental theories and ideas, but um, kind of what. He's saying is that, you know, we're entering an era very soon, and we probably have already kind of dipped our toes in it, where, you know, for the past three or 400 years, we were humanistic. Um, we've kind of turned, you know, after the Middle Ages, and we had uh, kind of a, a death of God, as, as Nietzsche said. Um, we, you know, we saw that humans were the ones building things, and we were the ones doing things, and we were the ones materialistically transforming the world. I mean... If you go look at any graph after the year about 1890, you'll see that by any measure of any human progress, I mean, things just start, start getting exponential, right? Mm-hmm. And it's all due to technology and specifically due to communication technology. And as you sort of move along that path, uh, humans matter a little less and a little less. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. And we, we're still, although we're still firmly humanistic, we believe in, in that, you know, the, the, the deep idea that we have knowledge and values that make us sort of almost, almost godlike. We, we understand right from wrong, essentially, is really what it comes down to. Um, but, you know, that's what, that's what the, you know, the founders of the U.S. and, and the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. um, said about natural rights. That's what natural rights are. There's, there's, there's natural things that go on in the world. Same thing that the Stoic philosophers in ancient Rome thought there's, there's things that are natural in the world that humans know and can sense. Well, what happens when you um, get to a point and you could start out with the behavioral economics of uh, like Kahneman or something. And it says, well, Hey, you know, maybe humans, there's a lot that we don't know about other people. And there's a lot that we don't know about ourselves. And it's when you start handing over bits and pieces of that humanistic idea and you're kind of uploading yourself into technology, which is exactly what we do in Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the more likes, the more you interact with technology, the more technology knows about you. So in turn, not only does technology know more about you than everybody, you know, but it knows more about you than you know about yourself. And then eventually you have such a connection with technology that it becomes um, almost godlike. And, and I mean that literally, and that's, that's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's scary, but it's also, I mean, it's, 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 you know, whether or not you buy the trip, like the, 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 where it's going, like the kind of end state of the trajectory, Mm -hmm. it's clearly like very, very different right? The kind of ecology in which humans grow up and, and become adults mm-hmm. into adulthood is just so radically different, you know, uh, you know, not even speaking about future algorithmic situations that are very problematic, but even just right now, like the way in which Facebook is sort of refactoring our consciousness is um, whether you think it's alarming or not, it's certainly significant. And it's kind of contributing to a shift, I think, in, in, value sets that is typical of the 
sort of millennial uh, uh, mind or millennial millennial person in our culture. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about this too ahead of the call. Like, um, you know, this this you said quite well. I think what the plight is of the millennial, at least how I experience it often is like, I look at a future that is just exponentially weird and different. And I'm like, how do I prepare myself for that? Like, it seems very difficult to kind of get a handle on. Um, And at the same time, I feel like our culture is often sort of talking down about millennials. Like they're kind of just uh, Mm -hmm. say like, I think I read an article that like millennials just you know, the list of industries that millennials have quote unquote killed is very long. <laughs> and, and I think that I read an article like just last week, it was like millennials have now killed American cheese. And it's just like, well, what, <laughs> what, <I> do. <laughs> what does that even mean? Right? Yeah. Like, what else will they kill? Yeah. 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 No, it's, uh, it's, it's true. I mean, there's going to be a, a, a value structure that, that progresses that, uh, so, you know, I've kind of talked about the cyclical ideas of, of, of values for, mm-hmm. for generations, but, you know, that's just a sliver of the, of the, the real issue here. Um, and kind of going back to, to modernism and to postmodernism and to what's next, you know, you can, you can take this thing all the way back, which is like, which I do. So it's, it's kind of a history book as well. And it says that, well, you know, you, you have a, a, an animistic society of, of hunter gatherers that, um, you know, live in nature. And then 10,000 or 12,000 years ago, you have a, you know, we get into culture and then you start to codify these stories across time. Um, as you get, you know, about two or 3,000 years ago into some sort of formalized religion. Um, and then basically the middle, what, what are the middle ages, but the, the lived sort of structure that came out of these writings, you know, across the world all at the same time, you know, Lao Tzu and Confucius and Buddha and Plato and, and, and Jesus and Christianity. And, and this, this happened kind of simultaneously because it's, it's uh, sort of almost like an order of nature. So, so you've got this sort of biologic uh, technological progression that happens um, all the way through. So you're talking about, you know, the printing press really stopped the, the middle ages, right. When, mm. when Mark, Luther nailed the uh, the thesis on the on the wall and said, "Hey, you know, you guys are, uh, you know, and, and everybody could read it. You know, you they sort of uh, uh, once you can read, you sort of take the power away from the clergy, and then everybody sort, starts to kind of start their own religion, not necessarily religion, but their their own interpretation of religion, right? And then, so then you get into the the modern world, and you have uh, you know, the, the invention in the late modernism and the, in the industrial period, you have, you know, the photograph and, and the radio and the, the motion picture and the television. And then you have the, um, you know, the, the internet and, and these things are, are progressing and you're, you're having to, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, the Hanzi, um, in the listening society calls them stages. You have to interpret these. It's sort of like your, uh, it's like your software. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you're born in a certain time, you, you take a software update, right? So you have a, a software and a hardware. And it, I almost, um, and, and that kind of does go hand in hand with the, the cyclical idea, but 
you gotta have a, sort of a, a a dialectic. You know, it's kind of a synthesis of the ideas that there's there's cycles as well as there's there's ultimate progress, mm. and you know you need to understand where that's going to take you know a, a value structure. Mm-hmm. Nice, yeah, and and, and so. I, I, the, one of the pieces of the book the, and, and the generational theory in particular that really resonated with me was this idea of the millennial generation being the hero archetype, which, um, you know, mm-hmm. one of, one of the main themes of this show really is the sort of like existential situation that humanity finds itself in and, and millennials, it seems more so than say the baby boomers don't feel like we can sort of, uh, abstract ourselves from it like we it, it, it seems to be more present in our consciousness uh, to a much greater degree than previous generations and and so i i was I, I love the idea the possibility of imagining the millennial generation as it unfolds as being the this kind of like he- heroic generation um and yeah i wonder i wonder if you could say more about about that yeah sure um i i like I like that idea um, as well. And I think there's something uh, true in it. Um, here's, here's what I'll say about that. I think, you know, the, the, the idea of being a, a civic archetype or a hero archetype um, generation is the fact that you're going to do your duty, right? Um, that's what the, that's what the GI generation did. What the greatest generation did mm. is they went and, and, and they fought, and they did their duty, um, you know, what was expected out of them, essentially. So, you know, you don't have, um, they're they're not baby boomers. There's not going to be a massive cultural fight. I mean, you know, Occupy is is a great example of of that type of thing that happened. Um, Although, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't really last and it didn't really pick up steam. So they're going to fight in a, in a, in a more, uh, I guess you'd call it more civilized way, or they're going to be a little bit more camouflaged. They're going to kind of fight from the, the inside out, maybe more than the baby boomers re- revolted and rebelled. Mm. So, you know, what they're going to do is change the game from the inside. Is 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 how I see it happening, um, and you know, so I I take this to sort of map on top of you know everything that the the meta modern ideas stand for are are neo Piagetian developmental models, and what that means is that after Piaget, who kind of said that you have four for uh, stages uh, as a child, as you become an adult, these, these neo Piagetians um, said, well, listen, it, you can develop as, a, as, an, as an adult as well. So that's kind of how far we've come in just the, the 80 years or so since Piaget, Piaget did his work. Mm. I mean, and you have like a, like a Claire Graves who talked about social development. Um, Jane Levenger was, you know, talked about ego development. Michael Commons talked about cognitive development. So there's all these people that are working in different disciplines that are talking about 
abstractly pretty much the same thing. So because I'm interested personally in the idea of leadership and sort of the, the, the power structures, how things can get done. Um, I've kind of, I like, there's a, there's a, a guy named Bill Torbert, who's a, a, a professor and he's got a developmental leadership model who, and he talks about the, the um, kind of the progression of, of leadership and in, in the developmental framework. And he says that, you know, basically about half, half of uh, leaders never get, and it, this is extensive studies over, over decades, mm-hmm. half of leaders never get to the, there's seven stages, never get to the fifth stage of, of leadership. So the idea to me is that millennials have the capacity and the ability to get to these higher stages of leadership to really do some transformational change. And I think that's, that's where the, I don't know if we'll call it the baby boomers, the generation X, or maybe it's not their fault. Maybe it was just culture or it's culture of business. You know, a lot of my book too is a critique of the leadership industry itself. And really over the past 40 years or so, the, the idea has been to make experts, which is number three on the, on the stages Mm. of, uh, of, of Torbert, um, make experts into achievers. So, and Mm. what you're doing there is you're, you're getting somebody who's good at their job and you're making them a leader and you're saying, okay, let's look at this little departmental framework and let's do good at this. Hmm. And it's like, okay, well, we can, we can do that. We can do that. But there's, there's no, uh, there's no spirituality in it. Mm-hmm. There's no, um, if you, if you, if you go back to like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's no, there's no self-actualization in it for the most part. Right. Yeah. So, and that's what, as you develop, that's what millennials are looking for is, you know, what's our next, what's the next project? What's our next project? It's, it's to do, it's to do something, right? Mm. Um, so how do you interpret that in terms of, in terms of leadership and in terms of, you know, just getting up and going to work? How's that going to, how's that going to change? So you, what you do is you, you become a, a more developed person and a more developed leader. And I think that the millennial generation has that capability to sort of, uh, change from within. And mm-hmm. I'll go back here and I'll, I'll, I'll try to wrap this up. Um, the, the idea, uh, some of the ideas out of PJ, who is this original kind of developmentalist, you would call him. Mm. He, he sort of said, what do you do as a child? You, first of all, you, you got to learn the rules, learn the rules of the game. So first rule is, you know, get in touch with yourself. And I mean that as a, as a baby, you know, you, you learned to, to suck your thumb, to, to suit yourself. You learn where your fingers and toes are. And then you, then you learn to play with another kid. Then you learn to play with a group of other kids and you learn to, the rules of the games. Um, and then you, you know, if you play those games, right, then you get invited to play in other games. And then you try to master the games that you're good at. Mm-hmm. And then you, once you master the game, then you 
then, then, and only then can you, can you start to change the game? So that sort of correlates to the, the, the fifth stage of the Torbert model where, you know, in, in Will Berrien terms, you know, you would call it like second tier, mm. right. Where you get this sort of this next, this next level of, of leadership or, or of consciousness or however you want to call it. Um, and, you know, only 15% leaders ever get to be an individualist or a strategist or, or somewhere along, along those lines. And I think that, you know, and you get there, you get there by things like meditation, Tai Chi, uh, reading philosophy, reflecting, writing, playing music. I mean, you know, cause it's, it's, it's deeper, right? It's not, you know. Yeah. Well, and I think, so one, one thing that came up for me as you were speaking is, is something that, uh, person I read online, David Chapman, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he has this um, developmental model, he uses Keegan's model, and talks about how often people s- try to kind of skip the mastery of systems now, because postmodernism is a kind of cultural phase. So there's a, um, people are inclined to sort of act as if postmodernism before they actually appropriately go through modernism right through like learning to master a system master a game uh and so they have to kind of go back and learn a system or or learn you know i I guess in in maybe more like self or or spiritual scenes you'd say like integrate your shadow of those particular stages and you know i notice what a uh, what an impact going to the monastery had on me because there was a place that you were held to a very rigid system. And that was actually, I think, a lot of the benefit. Sure, we got to like sit a lot, but I had never been held to a system that I could believe in because like most of the systems I've participated in have been uh, like super lame, you know, like the education system is obviously lame. Yeah. Like, you know, the the jobs that I had been often lame and just like, you know, the, so this was a, a, a really um, helpful, uh, I think, for me so that I could start to uh, uh, understand more, I think that what what's on offer in the next stage, because otherwise it was sort of like I was looking in more so. And, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's uh, an interesting tension there because I think it, there is this propensity in our culture to, to, I think, attempt to kind of skip that stage. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you, is that something that you see and agree with and are concerned about? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think, uh, I think what you're talking about there is exactly why Jordan Peterson is, right. you know, so popular now. Is he's telling millennials about things that happened and and these these traditional structures that people found tr- truth in for thousands of years, right? That they would never really they never really saw. It's like, well, these are what uh, this is what everybody believed forever, and you know, his kind of thing is the the, the oldest truth is usually the the, the the thing that's most right, mm. um, which is why he's, you know, a conservative. It's that that's, you know, you can, you can think of that in, in, uh, in political terms. If, if you want, you don't have to, I prefer not to, but, um, yeah, yes. sure. The, the, there's things out, there's truths out there that are old and, um, you know, axiomatic in terms of, um, you know, wh- how things present themselves today. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with that, it's going to seem, uh, it's going to seem not real and 
you're going to, you know, in his terms, you're going to be pathological. You're not going to, you're not going to understand. Mm, yeah. Then, then that reminds me also of Robert Keegan's book in over our heads about the kind of differential between our own development and the kind of developmental development of the culture and how the the difference between that can mm-hmm. be very challenging to live through. Um, and yeah. And, and it also, again, the, the thing I'm struck by is like the monastery that I lived in was uh, both training us in meditation, but also teaching us how to be kind of effective actors of systems change. It was called, it was like a, it was a modern monastery. We called it awakening and responsibility. And in that way, it was a kind of embodiment of the, what's on the cover of your book, which is, you know, somebody looking backwards and forwards, right? So it's just kind of like, and I think that's maybe mm-hmm. what Jordan Peterson doesn't do quite as well is like integrate this a very important understanding of the power and role of like ancient technologies of, you know, whether there be monasteries or religion, um, but integrating that with like the fact that we're on an exponential, you know, existential playing field in a way that we haven't been that these ancient technologies, the, the, the situation they're formulated in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you know, I think the, the, the archetypal hero's journey that he talks about a lot as well, it's, well, that's really, that's going through these stages, mm. you know, individually. There, there's, there's a, there's sort of a hero's journey as you, as you, uh, as you climb the, the stages of, of development, right? Every time you're going to sort of break apart all your, all your axioms, all your understanding of the past, and you need to put things back together again. You know, the, the, the chaos and order story, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and yeah, I, I agree with you. There's, there's not enough credence to the, the emerging structures that seem just as real, especially for young people always as, as the ones that happened that already happened in the past. In mm-hmm. fact, they're more real. Mm-hmm. Nice. And, and so I think what would be cool then maybe is to describe a little bit more about this stage five leadership, because I think the other point, maybe it's made in the article, maybe you make it in the book that is made is, is that, you know, the, the nature of our existential situation is that we have to start to create interdisciplinary solutions, like kind of almost I- impossible innovations that would only be possible if we started to like practice, it seems, this kind of more sophisticated form of leadership. And so uh, could you describe that kind of leadership? Like, what is it like? And then, um, yeah, yeah. Give, give us a little more sense of it. Yeah, well, start at the beginning here. Like conventional leader is somebody who's completely, you know, basically an ego that's, that's not interested in, in anybody else but themselves. So we hope that we never run into a leader like that. Um, the next stage, and this is exactly what you were saying about, you know, the same thing applies to postmodernism. You have to go through postmodernism. You have to go through the modern world to get the metamodernism. You know, you, you can't skip these, these ideas. It's the same thing as, as developing as a child child in, in, in Piagetian terms. Um, so you have an expert and that's where most people exist for their life, 38% of people. Um, and this is what Torberg found. Mm-hmm. Um, they're logical, precise, uh, consensus building, uh, rational, efficient. Um, you know, these are, if you want to be good at your job, you want to be an expert. Sure. Um, and that's great. So the, what the leadership industry tries to get is tries to make the experts into achievers. So the next one up is the achiever. 
and they're well-versed in, in delegation. Um, they're not particularly sensitive. They, they improve things departmentally. Um, they have a little bit more complex thinking. Um, you know, they're, they're cognitively more, more complex. Um, and then you get into the individualist, what's the next stage. And that's more of the relativistic, non-judgmental. And I suspect if, if Torbert were to, um, replicate this study today, a lot more people would be in the individualist category. This was done about 10 years ago, this study. Um, they're aware of possible conflict between principles and actions. Um, I think you're going to find a lot more uh, millennials bleeding into this category, even though back then it was only 10% of the population. Um, so I think what you're trying to do from a, in millennial leadership, kind of what I call metamodern leadership, is you're trying to, instead of going to stage three to four, you want to go from stage five to six, ideally, hmm. which is to, to kind of find yourself again, become an individualist, um, become non-judgmental, um, but not to the point where you lose your, your vision, your own personal vision, and then you turn to a strategist. And that's where you encourage personal and organizational transformation. So mm. that's really where you become a, a trans, you develop becoming a person who does transactions, uh, maybe for a living or just to get, get things done and get out of your way to somebody who, who handles transformation. Um, and usually, and hopefully, um, if you can help it, uh, sort of a creative and innovative, uh, conflict, conflict resolution sort of, uh, sort of way. I mean, that's putting, putting all these sort of seven P's that I call them together. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully you can, you can rise to the level of a strategist within the context of your time and place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, just to put another fine point on it, because I think it's so important in these kinds of conversations. Uh, it's, these aren't like binary places like, Oh, I've, I've checked off, you know, being rational and effective, right. They, <laughs> they actually all take kind of cultivation and each of them is kind of like, it could be an endless game to a certain degree, you know, like Kant is on one very far end of the spectrum of like that kind of expression of human consciousness. Right. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 much richer and more complex and more like um, multifaceted. I think than these. I, I think these developmental models tend to uh, indicate. And also, like so, this stage six, like so, people who have done things like you know either meditated or or become gone on a journey of self discovery, like that's kind of what happens in that stage. And and you can ask yourself like have I, to what degree have I, am I familiar with the previous stages? But in any case, that is seemingly the kind of a f- new level of leadership that's needed now to kind of meet the world as it is, is increasingly becoming. Is that right? Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I think, um, you, you know, as, as you develop and you, you develop your, your competencies, I guess you could call them your competencies. Um, but it's almost like you're simultaneously um, developing um, a, a spiritual a spiritual stage as well, hmm. um, and it's and it's almost like they uh, they go back and forth between the two dimensions. It's kind of like what you're saying. 
Um, and that's why, like you were saying, the cover cover of the book, it's it's a depiction. And and I actually had a I was lucky enough to have a, an artist do this originally this this version of the Janus um, mm. from Roman mythology. And the the Janus was the the god of of, of gates or doors or transitions or, or something like that. Is that how it's translated? But um, it's like, man, you have to have a sort of an internal battle with yourself um, as you sort of ascend into these. It's not going to, in other words, it's not going to be easy. You know, this is not just a, like you said. It's not going to be a check mark. You're not just going to go. Oh well, now I'm going to believe this. It's like. Well, you don't have any control over what you believe. Mm. You know, you, it's going to, if you want to, if you want to change your beliefs, it's going to require a lot of work. Nice. Yeah. And I think that's the risk in these kinds of conversations is to just name these things like they're one after another. Uh, uh, but yeah, it does require a lot of work. And so the good, the, the, the good news or what, what you inspired me or what struck me in our, in our previous conversation, though, is um, that you see kind of corporations increasingly vectoring towards a lot of these leadership styles and sensibilities. And, and you made the case to me, and it was very persuasive that like, this is actually not just the future of like, weird fringe podcast philosopher land, you know, but actually uh, the realm of, of like major corporations. Right, right. I, you know, uh, a lot of people ask me like, how, how the hell did you did you get into this? From from, you know, you're writing a, you're writing a book about business. How you how did you get into meta modern, mm. you know, ideas about uh, about philosophy? And it's like, well, it's 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 a long story. Just like it pretty much parallels the the rest of the the idea about culture. It's like. If you if you go back to business around the the turn of the, the when the millennials were being born, you know you you talk about the the sort of the zeitgeist of the the neoliberal fervor of freeing up economies and mm-hmm. and uh, across across the world and and that's great because you get cheaper products and you get you get goods from all over the world and man it's it's great. And and that's that was really what stopped the the stagflation in the 1970s. It was the kind of the cure. So you, you know, looking back, it's like, do you really blame people for implementing those those ideas? And that's what the uh, you know the the presidential election of 2016 sort of you know rebelled against was was this neoliberal idea that started and in, really started with Carter. Um, and on through Reagan and, you know, on through out, uh, Clinton and really through, through Obama the whole, the whole, the whole time. So you've got a, an obviously business governments behind business in general. That's, that's the way contracts work. Um, but you, so you have this sort of idea of profit maximization in, in, in wall street and you start to have mergers and acquisitions and businesses doing all this new crazy stuff. Um, because there's, you know, the, the idea of innovation is kind of, um, kind of gone because you're the, your, your only innovation is to sort of offshore and to move some things around and, um, kind of restructure and to then the, the next step from that is mm-hmm. you start to cinch the belt up, right? You start to, you start to find out what's, what can you cut? So now you start to get into the, the sort of the six Sigma ideas of, well, we're going to 
you know, the lean ideas. We're going to, we can, we can, we can cut this and we can cut this and we can, you know, we're bloated here and, and, and okay, fine. But, you know, we will cut pensions. We'll do this. But once you start getting like you, like we are now, and like we have been for the past five or 10 years, once you start getting the millennial generation in, into the mix in your workforce, those ideas, um, not only, not only what does it not interest them for the most part of running a business that way, it's like, well, we're in a period where we need innovation. That's, you know, everything's, everything's technological and, and innovative. I mean, ask any CEO of any company and what, what kind of people do they want? Mm. Do they want people who can, who can find, you know, cost cutting? No, they want people who can innovate. They want people who have an entrepreneurial mindset, people who have, um, connection to the new power structures to, to make things happen. Mm. Um, and, and I think we talked about this before. There's a, there's a gentleman named Jeremy Hyman's, um, out of, uh, out of Australia, wrote a book called new power. Mm-hmm. And really the, the guy to me from, as far as I can tell, he was an activist, um, uh, sort of a progressive, progressive activist that started telling companies how to, how to adopt, these these new strategies and one thing that i liked what he said is that he said you know you can really relate to companies and and maybe the 80s or the 90s or maybe even the 2000s it's like we were playing a game we we're playing tetris where if your company uh, a block's falling and it's got a it's got a funny shape and it's gonna drop and you're gonna have to fit it in to where where it's gonna go best that's how the world worked well you know, you nowadays, even this short time since we've got all this this great digital technology, we can play. Uh, I hope I have this right. Minecraft, yeah, yep. where you you kind of build things from the ground up, and you don't have to wait for things to fall. You don't have to to sort of retrofit things into what they were in the past. You can you have an opportunity to build things yourself, and when you can build and when you can create. It's going to, um, that's where the value in, in business is, uh, especially, I mean, you know, look at the most, um, look at the most valuable companies now. I mean, um, mm-hmm. you know, your Googles and your Amazons and your, um, that's where, you know, Google and, and Amazon aren't, aren't great companies because they, they know where to, uh, where to cut the budget. It's, it's because they know how to how to innovate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 I think you're saying that that the that these other corporations who aren't Apple and Google and Facebook are kind of seeing now the writing on the wall as far as what the shift for them. Yeah, I, I'm. I, I, I uh, yeah. So the, the reason, so I work for I, I work for a large company, very large company, um, and one of my required viewings. Um, was watching this this uh, Jeremy Hyman's uh, video about new power, and he um, he uh, did his speech in front of uh, executives in, in in Dallas. So, uh, and then they put it on on the internet, and the it's it's required uh, for for everybody to to watch. So, um, you know, I, I see business in general really starting to wake up to these these new ideas i mean they understand that 
you know, there's gotta be development. It's like, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, it's like, well, you know, you kind of, kind of left out there hanging in the wind. I think a lot of people can relate to this who, who work for, for large companies because the world hadn't really changed yet. Millennials for the most part didn't get into, uh, and, and I really keep going back to millennials here because once they get into the, the workforce, mm. um, for, for better or for worse, <laughs> they want a lot of different, they want a lot different things than most people do. And that's only going to grow. And what do they want? Well, they want, you know, they want, they're not necessarily looking for money. Um, they want, well, you know, they want, uh, more, more options to grow and, and create and to innovate and exactly the, the things that companies want employees to have. Right. So what, what do you do? Well, you, you start to develop a, a system or a framework or a culture or a train path or something to let these, let these employees actualize that gets them what they want and gets you what you, you want. Yeah. Well, and they, they also want, I think, uh, meaning, right. They want, they want to feel like what they're doing meaning. with their life has meaning. meaning. That's it's right. Like, uh, that's right. That's something that I'm also kind of curious about how companies will respond to, like to what degree they're willing to restructure themselves in order to amplify the meaningfulness of actually working for them. Right. And that goes from everything from like telling a new story about what it is they do, but like it also, you know, it's hard to, there are certain things that it's very hard to do and claim it to be very meaningful in the way I think that many people are, are hoping for in, in the millennial generation. But, um, so, and, and I think what you're, what you're getting at is, is, is perhaps that like, uh, you know, these companies are going to want to compete to attract millennials in order to survive. And so that, you know, essentially my degree in philosophy will become valuable, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I would, I would like to, I would like to think that, you know, I, I really do. Yeah. And in fact, I've, uh, I've read a lot. Of, I've really dug into to uh, to that question. Um, I find that you know, in let's 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 take a step back uh, a couple years ago to to colleges to 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 masters programs in colleges. Um, you know, I've seen a lot lately. Just recently, in the past few weeks, is you know, MBAs are declining. Masters of Business Administration are declining, and I think you're a lot of the companies that were hiring MBAs maybe five years ago are replacing that with mass with MFA master of fine arts and with, with philosophy students and with people who can understand systems theory and complex mm. uh, interdisciplinary ideas to be able to put these things together. Cause you know, with every passing day, the world gets more complex. And if you can find if you can find somebody who can develop a framework, interpret the big things, and then sort of um, find simplicity on the other side of that complexity, uh, that's that's who you want, right? So, you know, I I think that there's there's a lot of uh, systems degrees that are popping up, master's degrees, um, leadership. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't come a grasp. I can't remember the uh, 
the terms on a lot of these newer degrees that I'm seeing popping up, mm. but I do try to follow that. So to answer your question, I think that a, a philosophy degree is a lot more valuable than it was 10 years ago. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Great. Yeah. And, and, and other things that you, mentioned, <laughs> you know, that, that make me very happy is, is things like meditation, you know, uh, which I think, you yeah. know, Good, good thing to do. And then, um, presumably, you didn't say this, but like listening to podcast conversations like this too is probably a good a good way to to get exposed sure, to the ideas absolutely. and help you help you um, y- you know meet the complexity of the world in a way that's useful actually to these companies. Um, uh, and and so that's yeah, I, I I'm I'm pleased with that <laughs> that perspective on the world. I'll, I'll be transparent about it. And um, and and yeah, I think. It's it's a it's a helpful and optimistic kind of picture, I think, for people who aren't drawn to STEM as the kind of uh, you know place that everybody gets directed to if they want to be successful. Or at least it has been for a while. And so this idea of a kind of future of a more liberal arts where where liberal arts is actually quite useful is um, very very appealing to me, and I think a, a hopeful vision for our future. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. I think you have uh, a couple views of society. Like a, you have a guy like a like an economist, like Tyler Cohen. Mm. Um, he, or am I saying that right? Ty, Tyler Cow- uh, Cowen or Cohen? I'm not sure. But, Cow- yeah. Cowen Cower. Um, I think he's a Georgetown uh, economics professor. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a book called "Average Is Over," mm-hmm. um, which kind of it's kind of a, a kind of a smack in the face, kind of a wake up call. It's like, mm. hey. The, the new the new world's going to be completely libertarian and you better get your act in order and uh you know you better get your stem degree and figure it out um but then there's the other idea that it's like well you know the there seems to be an emerging um kind of understanding of metamodern um politics and, and sensibilities and value structures um, where you start to start to become more like a maybe like the Nordic countries, mm. um, and start to you know so there's that's kind of what the two competing value systems, um, and it probably and most assuredly will play out in politics. Mm. Um, but it's mm. it's definitely something to uh, to consider. Interesting. Yeah, that, I appreciate that. That's um, not a kind of juxtaposition that I had really considered before between somebody like Tyler Cowen or Cohen and uh, metamodernism as being these two kind of dominant value sets, even within the millennial generation. But now that you're speaking about it, uh, it, it th- that does seem to be the case. And it's going to be interesting to watch that sort of relationship unfold over time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so so James, thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think this is a really uh, useful way to frame the conversation. Is there anything else that you would like to say to the audience before we bring this conversation to a close? Uh, I don't think so. I just want to thank you very much. I, I enjoyed it, and it was very nice talking to you. Thank you, James. Thank you.